thank you for the greeting and certainly for the prayers. Uh, you have those times in life where you, you meet someone and then you say, wow, I think I actually like you as a friend right away. And uh, sometimes you that takes a little bit longer for friendships to develop. But I think when Steve and I met right away, it was very mutual that there's a sense of camaraderie, I think because of password ministry, of course, but just uh, the likability and similarities with each other. And so uh, it's been fun to have friend as a, to have Steve as a friend to, to you with him uh, from time to time. And then when he said, hey, would you ever come uh, consider coming here? And I said, hey, would you ever consider going there? And uh, he, he said, yeah. And so that's how we uh, have arrived at where we've arrived today. And it's, it's good for lots of reasons, but I think most obviously because it just makes the point of the unity that we have as local churches. We're, I don't know, 10 miles from each other, but a sense of being together that there's no sense of, of competition in anything. I often say that we're essentially members of the same uh, choir singing the same gospel message, uh, maybe different parts in little different ways, but together in that. And so uh, it's, it's good to be with you. I thought of um, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, even more so when Steve mentioned to me that you have routinely been working through the book of Numbers, which is this wilderness scene and time of testing and failure and all a mess and disappointment, where there's something that gets resolved in this. And then certainly, too, as we think about uh, the events of Good Friday and Easter before us, these are like the, uh, the latter parts of Jesus's earthly ministry. Well, his temptation in the wilderness is the beginning part, but it's always viewed even in anticipation for what's to come. So uh, Matthew chapter 4, I invite you to uh, follow along as I read the first 11 verses, and then I'll say one more prayer for us. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their heads and on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall love, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the angel left him, and behold, angels, rather, and the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Amen. Well, gracious God, we've been reminded this morning that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth and the scriptures, and then uh, certainly in your son. And so we pray that even now you make us hungry for uh, heavenly food, that it might uh, nourish us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the bread of life. Amen. The devil you know uh, is better than the devil you don't. The devil is in the details. The devil made me do it. If the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. 
Now, you probably know those first sort of three cultural lines about the devil. They're fairly well shared and exchanged among us. But that last one, you will only know if you grew up in certain Christian circles like I did, that if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack, is actually, strangely enough, a lyric from a children's song. Uh, I sang it as a youngster myself, but as I thought about it, I said, that is such a weird thing to say. Uh, I think mostly because it, it trivializes or it makes light of how devilish, how terrifying the evil one actually is. Martin Luther once said, quote, that the devil baits and badgers us on all sides. So he doesn't just get, give up and sit on attack because you told him to. No, he's relentless in his efforts to torment our consciences. Such a, a, a palpable thought. He, he baits and badgers us on all sides. He wants to get you to a point where you will despise the word of God, where you'll despise the works of God, where you'll find yourself calling into question God's truthfulness, his faithfulness, his reliability. The evil one's intent is always the same, but he'll use various strategies, I'm sure, depending upon our circumstances, our disposition. But his goal is always to drive us to despair and to doubt, and particularly so when we give in to temptations. For instance, we all know what it's like, I'm sure, to feel the pressures or temptations to cheat or to lie or steal in order that you might save face, you might get that homework assignment turned in in time. Or the temptation to sexual sin when you're all alone with your phone or you're traveling for work. Uh, solitude and anonymity can be a lethal combination. Or maybe you struggle with uh, self-control. You, you hear the, the clinking of ice in a glass or you get a waft of a drink as it comes from the bar and you've been down that uh, cycle of addiction so many times. You know the misery of it and yet there is desire that, that stirs within you. Or perhaps uh, temptation, it's like a, a bit more buried for you. You're, you're tempted to things more like self-righteousness. Uh, to look down your nose at other people who can't get their act together, particularly the, the ill-willed, uh, the weak-willed. You're tempted to think, well, that could never, ever happen to me. They are such a mess. And what's happening is that it's resulting in you having a heart being poisoned by judgmentalism. So we all face temptations of various kinds, but the common danger in each one is that giving into temptation uh, takes us to a place of transgression. That's kind of like a key thought right there. Giving into temptation takes us into a place of transgression. So transgression just means to cross a boundary line, to see the no trespassing sign and go, doesn't apply to me, and you blow past it. Uh, to transgress, uh, as we think about it Christianly, is to first and foremost uh, to violate God's moral boundaries. And that takes us to a place of despair and, and doubt as you are weighed down by guilt and regret. Not only that, but giving into temptation takes us into territory where we violated God's command to respect and to love other people because in some sort of way we're using them for our own personal gratification. So when you cross the line from temptation into transgression, we're in violation of the first big two of loving God the most and loving our neighbor as ourselves. We all struggle with various temptations, including, as we read here in Matthew chapter 4, our Lord Jesus. Jesus, whose hair is still wet from his baptism in the Jordan River, 
was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. He's tempted in three specific ways, and in each situation, we know the story, he triumphs over it. He's, if you like, victorious over the baiting and the badging of the evil one. And what Matthew is intending for us to recognize is that his victory over temptation and the devil reinforces his identity that, yes, indeed, this is the beloved son of God. Yes, indeed, this is the father's son. So uh, Jesus knew all about temptation, but as we were reminded this morning, he He never gave in and transgressed. He he never failed in the way that you and I do. He he never had that moment of self-loathing where he hated himself for what he did once again. His victory over temptation reinforces his identity as the Son of God and as the Savior that you and I very much need. Not only that, but his victory over temptation shows us that we have someone who's able to uh, come alongside us when we're tempted. He, he gets us. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, tempted in every respect, just as we are, yet without sin. Now, uh, the temptations that Jesus faces here in Matthew chapter 4, uh, they are unique to him. Uh, one commentator just called them messianic temptations. So in other words, they're uniquely appropriate to God's son who has this mission to lead God's people back to him, to usher in the kingdom of heaven by taking on the role of the suffering servant. So these temptations are unique, but as we'll see a little later on, these temptations are also uh, universal. They're pressures that you and I face too. And as we pay close attention, we'll see how the example that Jesus sets in his victory over these temptations is, is instructive for us as we face a similar sort of ceaseless baiting and badgering from the evil one. So with all of that said before us as as groundwork and framework, uh, I'd like to just look at this scene under three headings. Uh, The first one being the devil's temptations. The secondly, we'll see Jesus's triumph. And then thirdly, we'll say just a little bit about our temptations and triumph. First of all, and we'll spend the longest on this point, the devil's temptations. Big picture, Uh, What's happening here in the wilderness when Jesus is all alone and hungry is that the devil uses three diabolical attempts to subvert God's plan for redemption by causing Jesus to fall into sin and disobedience and thus disqualifying him as the sinless savior. You see, when Jesus, uh, when the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, it was a test designed to show that Jesus really is God's son and that he will follow the path God had laid out for him. When we use the word tempt, uh, we tend to associate it the idea of of being tempted to do evil. And of course, uh, that makes sense. But the word for for tempt as it's used in the scriptures in the original language, it can also mean to, to test or it might mean to prove. And that's what's going on here. This temptation is a test that proves the reality of who Jesus is. Here's what I mean. As someone else I was was reading put it, he said that you can test the authenticity of gold by submerging it into acid. If the gold is pure, nothing happens. If it's not, the impurity is burned away. You've tested it to prove the quality or value of it. Well, this temptation in the wilderness is a test that proves the reality of who Jesus is. 
So uh, Jesus and the devil, they, they go toe to toe. This is like the representatives of a kingdom of light and, and of darkness. And they're, they're, they're warring against one another. Which brings up for us uh, right away uh, the realness of the devil. He is uh, a personal, super intelligent, evil being. He's not all-knowing like God. He's not everywhere present like God. But, but he is wickedly aware He's wickedly cunning. He is one who has rebelled against God. He leads a spiritual kingdom composed of demonic powers who oppose God's purposes and kingdom. Which makes what's happening here in the wilderness uh, almost like a, a showdown of sorts. There's a collision of two sorts of kingdoms that are coming against one another. With Jesus being at a decided disadvantaged point having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. It's the upper limit of what a human can endure. You and I, of course, have, have been hungry before. Our kids say that they're hangry. You say, I know, I can tell. We've all had those things happen. But I'm guessing that, that none of us has ever been hungry like this. I wonder if you can picture him in your mind's eye. He's gaunt. He's weak. He's been all alone. Therefore, he's vulnerable. So when he's at his lowest that the evil one stalks him. The first temptation set before Jesus has to do with bread. As the tempter says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You sort of find yourself wondering, well, where is the temptation to transgression in that? Because isn't bread a good thing? After all, I've read the New Testament and it seems like Jesus likes to feed hungry people, particularly so when they've come to him in these little wilderness scenes. So what's this all about? Well, this is what I mean about these temptations being unique to Jesus. You go, I can't even make bread properly, you know, much uh, so like turn stones into bread. So I, I just don't get what this is all about. Well, uh, for Jesus to, to turn the stones of the wilderness into like a loaf of, of wonder bread, it, it would be a way in which he would be expressing doubt as to whether God the Father will provide for him, given that he's been identified as God the Son. So on one level, this is a temptation to like uh, misuse his God powers. It's not that the bread was illicit. It's that to manifest bread for himself would be to doubt the faithfulness of God toward him. On another level, uh, this temptation for Jesus is also uh, to think perhaps that the physical is more important than the spiritual. As our brother prayed, this is a, this is a temptation of, of the flesh. The, the satisfying of physical pleasures and needs by going beyond the boundary lines of God's framework. Well, in reply to the tempter's temptation, Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, which he'll do on these other two occasions. And he says this, quote, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. His point being this. Yeah, I'm very hungry and I'm in want. But that's not going to cause me to doubt the purposes and plans of God. He's going to preserve my life for as long as he wants so that I can do what he wants. And, and I trust him because even if I doubt his word for one moment, then everything is going to be lost. I'm living on the word of God. I'm, I'm believing even while in physical distress. I won't turn away from God's plans. Jesus won't go beyond the boundary lines of God's framework 
even for one moment, to satisfy his physical longings. The second temptation of the devil has within it the same line as the first. If you are the son of God. But now uh, there's a change of scenery. They move from the wilderness to the city of Jerusalem and to the pinnacle point of the temple. And from this vantage point, the tempter suggests that Jesus uh, throw himself down so that the angels can scoop him up. You say, well, where in the world did he come up with this sort of rando idea? Well, right from Psalm 91, which is why Jonathan read that as our call to worship this morning. He's tugging on scripture. Psalm 91 is this song about God's protection and how uh, the sense of his nearness is actually meant to quiet down our fears. So Satan is suggesting to Jesus that, hey, why don't you put the words of God in Psalm 91 to the test? Because it says toward the end of it this, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So in challenging Jesus to, like, uh, take the leap, he's tempting Jesus to prove that God will be faithful to him as his son. It really is such a crafty move on the evil one's part because he hears Jesus quote scripture to him in refutation of his first temptation. He says, oh, you, you want to talk scripture? Well, I can talk scripture with you. And so in the second temptation, he, he, he bends the meaning of the scripture. He pulls it out from all that it's meant to say in order to serve his own agenda. But Jesus, seeing through the deception and play, uh, goes on to show him, I, I think what he's showing us is this, what it means to live uh, by faith. Again, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I trust him, I trust him. The third temptation, uh, in this one, uh, Satan just, he goes after Jesus most aggressively removing any doubt of his temptations as he asks for Jesus's uh, worship. Satan has always wanted worship. He's always wanted to be God. And so from a vantage point of a high mountain with an eye to the surrounding nations, the evil one says, hey, all of this will be yours if you'll give uh, yourself to me. What's underneath this temptation is the invitation to take uh, a shortcut uh, to avoid the suffering of the cross uh, that was to come. So Jesus knows that the, in the next three years of his life, there, it's going to be filled with sorrow, suffering, that it'll end with a violent death. And what's like being dangled before him is a way to avoid the pain, to supposedly gain reward and glory without stooping to the role of the suffering servant. Jesus, knowing this full well, says to the tempter, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In other words, you're getting nothing from me and you're getting nothing of me. He knows that in order for him to win the crown, he must first go to the cross. And after refuting and resisting for the third time, it's recorded for us that the devil left Jesus and then the angels came and ministered to him. Now, there, there's a, a lot going on in this scene. I, I think in many ways we've, we've dipped down a little bit, but we could dip even further. But uh, as you think about these things, you, you'll find yourself asking some uh, natural questions. Uh, I think the first or the second that you'll come to will be this. Like, how exactly uh, did the devil go about uh, doing this? 
Was this some sort of physical action, interaction, or was it more of a spiritual struggle or some sort of combination of the both? Because uh, while some aspects of these three temptations seem to be physical, like turning stones into bread, other aspects of the temptations seem almost like to be visionary. Because there's, there's no, not a mountain anywhere in the world where the human eye could see all the kingdoms of, of the world. And so we recognize that there's a spirituality, that there's a, there's a mystery in some of this. But not anything that makes it non-believable. After all, Paul reminds us as Christian people that there is a, a spirit world uh, that is uh, working in around us that is largely unseen to the human eye. And in some ways, we're getting the curtain pulled back just a little bit. The evil one comes. The angels minister. I think what's main and, and plain in this account is that the temptations came to Jesus from, from outside of himself. So the devil uh, came to him, and it took him to a city, and then he took him to a high mountain. I say that to make the important point that the temptations came from outside of Jesus and not from within him because he had no sin nature within himself. He could only be tempted from outside of himself. You and I face temptations from without and from within, as the scriptures point out elsewhere, that each one is tempted when by his own evil internal desires, he's dragged away and enticed. For example, from within, I'm tempted toward pride and performance, to think that I'm more spiritual than other people, to think that I'm uh, like, quote, more successful than other pastors because there is wickedness that still dwells in my heart. There are also temptations outside of me that, that badger me. Uh, like to be unfaithful to my wife, to, to make a rash decision that will ruin my kids' lives, to bring a disgrace upon Christ and his church. You and I are tempted from within and also by circumstances outside of ourselves. And on some level, like Jesus, by the forces of evil. Every day we face the unholy trinity of temptation from, as the catechisms put it, the world the flesh, and the devil. While Jesus, who had no sin nature, faced these temptations from outside of himself, but to a degree that you and I have never known and never will know. The heaviness of it all, it pressed down upon him, but he never collapsed, he never gave in. The devil tried to make him do it, but he couldn't make him do it. He stood strong and unflinching. Which brings me to the second little phrase for these verses and one that we'll spend less time on than the first. And it's just simply this. Let's observe here Jesus's triumph. Jesus's triumph. You see, his victories over temptation and the devil, this reinforces his identity that this is God the Father's beloved son. Truly, this is the son of God. And on another level of the storytelling, Jesus's victory over these temptations in the wilderness also prove that he's the best of Israel. He's, he's the faithful Israelite's son. Here's what I mean. You, you remember how I mentioned in passing that each of Jesus' refutations of the devil's temptations are words from the book of Deuteronomy. Well, that's no mere happenstance. 
Because the book of Deuteronomy is telling the story of how God led the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years, as we read this morning. Why? Quote, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So the wilderness was a time of testing for the people of God to see if they would be faithful and true. And if you know the storyline of the Old Testament, you know that they failed miserably. For instance, when they were hungry, they grumbled, complained, doubted. They doubted God's promises. Might we say that they prioritized their physical wants over spiritual faithfulness? In some, they failed comprehensively. But what does Jesus do in the wilderness? He endures faithfully for 40 days, which is meant for us to see the way that that corresponds to the 40 years of Israel's time in the wilderness. They failed the testing. He endured the testing. They grumbled and complained. He stood strong and remained faithful. They were disobedient. He was obedient. Are you seeing the picture? He's the best of Israel. He resisted temptations that Israel would not, could not, and did not. He resisted temptation and remained faithful to his calling, laying aside his powers for the sake of his mission. And by his obedience, he silenced Satan on this day in the wilderness. And then, of course, by his obedience on another day, he silenced and he defeated Satan at the cross. He did so by laying down his life for his unfaithful people, for his doubting people, for his grumbling people, for his ill-willed people, for his weak-willed people. And here's the good news, the, the really good news. In living faithfully for us, Jesus resisted temptations that we would not, that we could not, and that we do not. Even at the very end, when his arms are stretched out upon the cross, he's still being tempted by the evil one through the voices of the crowd. Do you remember what they said to him? If you really are the son of God, then save yourself and come down off of that thing. But at the end, writes Taylor Mertens, at the cross, Jesus doesn't respond with passages of scripture to refute the evil one. He doesn't offer a litany of things to do or things to avoid. Instead, he dies. Instead of saving himself, Jesus saves us. And friends, because he did, the cycle of temptation to transgression can, can be broken in you. Jesus really can. He really will make your life new. You see, to be in Christ is to know that there is hope and that there is possibility for us that we can overcome temptations. And that's my final point, our temptations and triumph. Because when Jesus, uh, because while the temptations that Jesus faced were unique to him, we all share in the commonness of his humanity. And so we too face temptations. Like Jesus, our temptations are tough, but they too are temporary. That's a great little phrase I picked up from Kent Hughes. Temptations are tough, but temporary. They may come upon us frequently, but if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. As the Apostle Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 10, there's no temptation that isn't common to everyone. In other words, don't think that your particular temptation is so tough that no one else struggles with it. 
There's no temptation that's not beyond your ability to resist with our Lord's help. As the writer to the Hebrew pens it, Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted. He will give you power to endure it, a way to escape it. You see why knowing uh, verses like this are so important because it's where you draw strength from. It's how our minds and our hearts are shaped. It's how we guard ourselves against the warring of the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. To which Kent Hughes says, Our Lord Jesus was tempted in every respect, just as we are. And then he says, We sinners must learn from our Lord and cling to him. Learn from him, cling to him, that we might by faith win the victory for his glory and our good. Knowing and being shaped by scripture was a major way in which Jesus resisted temptation. He pulled upon the word of God from the book of Deuteronomy that was tucked deep into his heart, and he used God's truths and promises like spiritual armor, which is what we must learn to increasingly do because we are in a spiritual battle. I hope this isn't lost on you, that the devil baits and badgers us on all sides. He wants to get you to a point where you'll doubt the words and works of God, that you'll be driven to despair. He is hell-bent I'm tearing you away from faith and hope and love. He wants to draw you into unbelief and false security and stubbornness and foolishness. And you must be ready for the battle. So fill yourself up with the storyline of redemption in the pages of the scriptures. Memorize portions of it. Be armed with the spiritual belt of truth, your breastplate of righteousness, your shield of faith, your helmet of salvation. There's no temptation that's not beyond your ability to resist with our Lord's help. Be fully equipped for the struggle. And then uh, maybe keep in mind what Martin Luther said when asked how he, how he overcame the devil. He replied this, Well, when the evil one comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks, Who lives here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here but he has moved out. His point being that when Jesus fills our lives, the evil one has no point of entry. Which means, brothers and sisters, if you say no, the devil will, he will go. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That, that line from Martin Luther, it stirs my heart so much because he comes knocking on the door and who goes and answers on our behalf? The Lord Jesus himself. It's such a picture. It's it's like he stands in the doorway in order that he might be your protector and your deliverer and your savior, which is why in him, the cycle from temptation to transgression, it can be broken. He really, 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 he really can and will make your life new. Temptations are tough, but temptations are, are temporary. So let me bring things to a close and and say something. I don't know any of you. I don't know any of your life stories, but I'm going to guess that there's probably someone here right now who spent at least some portion of your week uh, in the land of transgression. You you cross the boundary line uh, into these things, sometimes reluctantly, sometimes uh, brazenly. And today, uh, you've been even grieved by the Spirit of God for what you've done. And you say to yourself, okay, well, what am I supposed to do now? Well, here's what you're to do. 
You're to run away from that no trespassing boundary line that you've crossed into, and you're to run back toward the kingdom of heaven. And then you are to go and knock on the door, if you will, of the kingdom. And what you'll discover is that it's the Lord Jesus there who's going to meet you and he'll find you. And he's going to take you by the hand and he's going to pull you close to him. And as he pulls you close, you will, you'll have a sense that there is uh, the power of, of healing and forgiveness in those hands. Because the hands of the Son of God bear the scars from the cross of his crucifixion where he bled and died for you. Which makes me think of these precious words. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon you. Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, we thank you for bringing us safely to this day. We pray now that you would keep us by your mighty power. Grant that we'd fall into no sin nor foolishly run into any sort of danger. We pray that you would lead and govern us in all things, that we might always do what is right in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.